Hello and welcome back to the Insights Podcast. I'm Philippa Lamb with this month's Accountancy News. And we've got something of a bumper episode this time. We'll be discussing how firms can maintain momentum on the International Standard of Quality Management, ISQM for short, as well as changes in preparation and filing following the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Act. We'll also hear about ICAW's new podcast for tax aficionados, The Tax Track, and we're going to brush up on recent changes to the Engaging in Public Practice Certificate. So with us remotely today, Alex Russell, Head of Audit and Assurance Strategy, Sally Baker, Head of Corporate Reporting Strategy, Lindsay Wicks, Senior Technical Manager in Tax Policy, and Chris Greenhalgh, Manager in Professional Standards. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. Hello, Hello thank you. Good morning. So lots to get through this time. Should we kick off with ISQM? Alex, can you just remind us what it is and when did it come into force? ISQM is the International Standards on Quality Management. The the major standard being ISQM1, which required firms within scope to design and implement a system of quality management by 15th to December 2022. Um, And actually, the, the, the firms in scope were those that carry out audits or reviews of financial statements or other assurance or related service engagements. Um, ISQM2 governs the applicability and requirements around engagement quality reviews and ISA 220 revised looked at the quality management at engagement level. And one of the fundamental principles around ISQM1 was eight different elements and a handful of the most important ones being the firm's risk assessment process its governance and leadership, its engagement performance, of course, resources, including how you interact with service providers and monitoring and re- remediation, which I'll probably come on to a bit later. So what was the essential plan here? How, how was it intended to raise audit quality? Well, the first clue is really in the name, quality management replacing quality control, um, and that itself putting emphasis on a proactive, continuous process rather than just a, a consideration at a point in time. And together with that, putting more emphasis on a firm's leadership for continuous improvement in audit quality and really trying to embed a, uh, a culture that supports that commitment to quality. So very central to this is the idea that this is not a one and done piece of regulation. This is not a box ticking exercise. It, it's a continuum. No, absolutely. So at the central tenet is that you design a system of quality management. And that, um, one of the fundamental principles is that is tailored to the nature of your firm. And it's very unlikely that two firms are alike. You have different people with different skills. You might have different specialists. You might be at a different stage of technology application. Um, and usually your your client base of audited entities will look very different. You might have different specialisms in different sectors and different industries. So altogether, um, the, the SOQM should be tailored to the nature and circumstances of your firm. Um, the thought process also isn't dramatically different to those approaching an audit. You risk assess it and then you design procedures to address that risk. And ISQM1 is really no different. You're you're trying to establish what's known as quality objectives and then identify risk to that and then design and implement responses. So um, it is an iterative and continuous process. So Alex, what was the thinking there then? Well, it's taken a firm some time and resource to get their systems of quality management up and running. But um, another reason you wouldn't want to stop and stand still now is in the future, you could well um, expect to get some benefits from root cause analysis. So do you have learnings from your audit functions that you can apply outside to your other functions, uh, such as tax? But also some firms I've spoken to have started along with positive root cause analysis as well. So 
finding out what went right, not just what went wrong on their files, finding out um, which teams worked together and, and what examples of good good um, documentation looked like. So that's encouraging. That's encouraging to hear those conversations already happening. So tell me, where do you think firms might struggle with this? I think from conversations I've been having with our committee members and, and uh, working groups is probably in around two areas. Firstly, this standard was quite different in terms of needing buy-in from the leadership of the firm and, and the tone from the top. Um, and one of the major challenges has been keeping that going. So there might have been a lot of focus when uh, the headline deadline of the 15th of December 2022 was in the front view, but leadership should continue to be highly involved in the process and continue to take the lead. And, and secondly, culture. So culture doesn't change overnight. And one of the new requirements in ISQM1 around root cause analysis especially requires very open, very blame-free conversations. And that doesn't that doesn't come naturally to most, especially if root cause analysis is being done internally by peers rather than someone else coming in to, to help you out. And I think culturally in firms in the past, there's a real fear of admitting to mistakes and thinking that might affect progression, a fear of asking for help. And also a uh, key to root cause analysis is interviewing people throughout the audit team. So juniors perhaps unprepared to speak up or, or feedback on, on their seniors. And a very good point was made to me by the chair of our working group last week, actually, that perhaps we're living in a culture of bring me solutions, not problems. And actually, ISQM1 and root cause analysis requires you to bring the problems, analyze them, look at the causes and, and try and remediate them. And I would just, just add one thing. It, it might not be that firms are struggling so much. It might be that when firms were looking about two years ago at getting this in place, they might have thought, as you just mentioned, it's sort of one and done but they stood still in the intervening period. But actually, a lot has happened in, in a year or two. You might have had changes in staff, hired people, lost, lost staff. Uh, your client base might have changed, and the economic environment is very different. You might have entities with a greater going concern risk or elevated fraud risk. And so you really need to consider if these have actually changed your quality objectives and, and your risks. Yeah, there's a lot to think about here, isn't there? I know ICAW's Quality Assurance Department has been monitoring how it's all been going. And what's what's their take on this so far? They carried out a survey in the first half of last year and um, the start from most firms was positive. In the medium-sized and large firms, they saw better whole firm procedures and a lot more procedures formally documented around CPD requirements and independence, which are very important. At this moment in time, at the 15th of December 2023, firms are required to do a first annual evaluation and reflection of where you are in your SQM. So that's pretty critical at the moment, and we'll be doing more to support that. And in fact, it's okay, you know, if you find yourself in a lower category in a QAD review, I think firms need to reflect on that and learn from it, really, and, and focus on how to carry on with that continuous improvement. QAD will also be doing ISQM1 focus visits to certain firms during the year. Um, and I, I know they'll be putting on a webinar helping firms prepare for a QAD visit. But really... Now that firms have got this SOQM up and running, it's really that monitoring and remediation cycle that's re going to be really the driving force of a, of, a, of a high quality system. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful, Alex. I mean, you say um, there's going to be assistance here. Where can members go if they would like to find out you know, more about this, more information, more resources to help them get through it? ICW has a quality management hub that has a collection of articles and webinars and podcasts that we've built up over the last couple of years. 
And then in the pipeline, um, you, you mentioned maintaining momentum, which is really important for us. On the back of an event in November, we'll be following up with articles interviewing some of the panelists. Got further articles coming on the annual evaluations I just mentioned and engagement quality review for sole practitioners and smaller firms as well. And actually, ICW has got a new CPD course up and running on root cause analysis as well. Those are just some of the things uh, we have already aura in the pipeline. So a whole array of, of resources and help outside of it. Absolutely. Thanks very much, Alex. Thank you. Next up, those changes in preparation filing following the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Act. The Act received royal assent on the 26th of October last year. You may remember we covered the content in episode 63 of the podcast, that was December. Today, we're going to look in particular at preparation and filing requirements. Now, Sally, this is your area. Uh, The Act has made a few changes to the preparation and filing of accounts. Before we get into them, what was the overall goal there? The overall goal of the Act clearly is to try and uh, prevent abuse of the corporate framework and tackle economic crime. But alongside that, the Act is trying to improve the quality and value of financial information that is held on the UK company's register and also just better serve the needs of the 21st century economy and and move it forward. Companies' House is is at the centre here as well, isn't it? Yes, it's uh, about making companies' house fit for purpose and better able to serve the needs of a 21st century economy. So should we run through the key changes? I think the Act has simplified filing obligations for small companies, hasn't it? So small companies will no longer be able to file abridged accounts. They will also be required to file their profit and loss account and their director's report, and that removes the option of filing so-called filleted accounts. And then, as well as those changes for small companies, there's also some changes for micro-entities because they will also be required to file their profit and loss account, but they will continue to have the option to not file a director's report. Now, as I understand it, the Act also says while smaller micro-companies have to file this P&L account, they do not need to be made available to the public. And I think that was... Because concerns were raised, weren't they, during consultation by ICAW and, and by others? Yes, exactly. This is uh, probably the biggest area of change from what was in the bill compared to what has come through in the final act. Um, so in the original bill, it was just simply that small and micro entities would need to file their profit and loss account. And by filing their profit and loss account, that puts it on the public record at company's house. There were concerns around that during consultation. It's a very finely balanced argument. Um, there are people that firmly believe that the transparency is the price of, of having a limited liability. Uh, of being a company and having that limited liability. Others, on the other hand, uh, including ICAW, uh, we are concerned about businesses being able to carry on trade effectively um, and that uh, filing certain information in the public domain can be prejudicial to the interests of those small companies uh, and their, their shareholders. So during the parliamentary debate, uh, there were various um, consultations and uh, there were various debates around that point Um, and where it's landed is that there is going to be provision for that information to not be made publicly available or parts of it to not be made publicly available. Will we be waiting on regulations for that? 
Yes, exactly. The detail behind all of that is, is unclear at the moment. It's still being considered in what circumstances that provision might be enacted. Like you said, we'll need regulations to be passed by Parliament before that is used. So definitely uh, something to be watching out for how that develops. And the audit exemption statement, that's been expanded upon? That's correct, yes. So at the moment, uh, when claiming an exemption from audit, directors currently have to state that they have claimed that exemption on the balance sheet. The Act extends this requirement and it's going to require directors to uh, include details of the exemption that is being taken, so identify the exemption that's being taken and also to confirm that the company is eligible to take that exemption. And that will apply to all companies, uh, including dormant companies. Now, looking ahead, we're expecting secondary legislation to enforce the electronic delivery of documents. So what's the thinking there and when do you think we're going to see that? Well, Companies House has a strategic goal of being a fully digital organisation by 2025. So I think that's something to bear in mind. As we've alluded to, all of these changes that are being introduced by the Act do require some secondary legislation and that is going to take some time. It is a a big package of measures within this Act and we're only just picking up on a small part of it today. So we're expecting things to be phased in probably over the next two to three years. Let's end with my usual question. Where where should members go if they want to find out more about this and, and keep up to date? The corporate reporting faculty, our web pages will uh, signpost members to changes um, and by registering to be a member of the faculty, you'll receive our monthly bulletin and we'll also be using other channels such as uh, our digital magazine by all accounts to keep members informed. And then the government also has a changes to UK company law hub that they have created, keeping people informed of changes that are introduced by the Act. That's great. Thanks very much, Sally. You're welcome. We're going to move on to tax now because ICAW's tax faculty launched its own podcast last month. Lindsay, you're hosting it. Tell us all about it. The podcast is called The Tax Track and new episodes will be going out monthly. So far, we've had two episodes. It brings together experts from across the tax faculty to discuss the latest developments and help listeners understand the context. We also talk about the possible implications for practitioners and taxpayers. And you're going to be covering a range of issues on tax. We cover the more expected to the more unusual. So, for example, in February, we covered changes to the cash basis from the 6th of April and what factors might influence the decision for self-employed and partnerships to use the cash basis. But we also looked at an interesting capital allowance case where two types of camping pod that looked identical from the outside were held by the first tier tribunal to be different when it came to whether they qualified as plant and machinery. You know the saying, it's what on the ins- what's on the inside that counts. That was certainly the case here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that does sound quite obscure, Lindsay, I've got to say. Um, I'm hoping we're still going to be able to tempt you and your colleagues onto this podcast too. Yeah, absolutely. The tax track's a space for specialists and those with a deeper interest in tax, but we'll continue sharing updates from tax in this podcast too. Tax is relevant to everyone. We all pay it. And everyone working in accountancy and business also need to keep up to date with developments. Yeah, well, I've listened to the first two episodes. It sounded great. Are you enjoying doing it? 
it's great to get the team together to talk about tax like we did we we love talking about tax um so the format of the podcast is that each episode we convene a round table of panelists drawn from across the tax faculty depending on the hot topics that listeners need to know about yeah it's a real family affair isn't it it is yeah the tax faculty team is home to experts in a variety of taxes so our hope is that members tuning into the podcast will gain an understanding of the different personalities where our expertise lie as well as the topics being discussed Um, it's important for us to be visible in this way we want members to know how they're being represented particularly as we input into consultations that shape the profession and the way it's going forward well, just like this podcast, you can listen and subscribe to Lindsay's series on any podcast app. The Tax Track is the name to look for, or you can listen on the ICAW site if you prefer, icaw.com forward slash podcast. Obviously, we will link to the series in the show notes for this episode. Thanks so much, Lindsay. Thanks, Philippa. And finally, the ICAW statement on members engaging in public practice came into effect on New Year's Day. Now, we covered the changes and eligibility in episode 50 back in May. That's a while back, so we thought we'd quickly recap the key points. Chris, what's changed in this statement? Yeah, so just to recap on the main changes that we've we've had the revisions on. So that in the new guidance, the references to the EEA have been removed um, following the UK's exit from Europe. So obviously that's happened and we needed to just tidy up the wording around that. But what that enabled us to do is actually tidy up a few other areas and points which uh, were causing members issues or indeed causing ICAW issues where the the guidance wasn't clear enough. So we've defined the definition of the UK. We've uh, removed the 10% de minimis limit, which was causing some issues in terms of firms not understanding when they required a PC. And more importantly, what that did was align our guidance with the money laundering regulations where there's no such de minimis limit. We've also highlighted other areas where it needed uh, clarity in terms of charities and what people can do in terms of um, pro bono work and the member's responsibility when it comes to signing independent examiner's reports. So who now needs a practising certificate? So largely things haven't changed. This this guidance has been around for a long time now and it was more an opportunity to update it rather than a wholesale change. So the previous guidance was largely fit for purpose. So the impact is is very minimal in, in most areas. Uh, what I would say is that if you are engaged in public practice and you're a principal or held out as a principal in a public practitioner, then you will require a practicing certificate. And there is more guidance on that, obviously, in the body of the statement. But we have got some more guidance in Annex 2, which covers some common examples. Do you want to just clarify for us what makes you a principal, Chris? So what makes you a principal is that if you're um, an ICAW member in a sole practice, a salaried or equity partner of a partnership, an ICAW member of a limited liability partnership, whether that be designated or non-designated, and then all types of uh, statutory director, including de jure or de facto directors, and also whether if you are held out as a principal in that practice, you will be requiring a practice certificate as well. And it's important to mention you don't need this certificate for accountancy services if no fee is charged for the work, is that right? Yes, that's correct, and that's clarified in the statement as well. And we talk about no fee or monetary reward or a token non-monetary reward or benefit is received for the work. 
Now, there is an amnesty period, isn't there? Because there's, there's a deadline, but there's also an amnesty period. You want to just run us through how the, how the rules work on this? Yeah, and that's the key thing that we wanted to bring to uh, members' attention with this podcast is that it is effective the 1st of January 2024. And if you read the guidance on our website and our hub and uh, read the different scenarios that we've got there, and you then decide that you require a PC because you're no court by the updated guidance, then there is an amnesty period until the 30th of April. So you really need to be looking at this guidance and apply for your practice certificate before the 30th of April. And if you do so, then what we're saying in this amnesty period is that there'll be no uh, disciplinary action, action taken on you for not having a practice certificate, but no realising you needed one. So that's the important for members to know, isn't it? If they've missed this and they've suddenly woke up to the fact that they're a bit late to it, uh, they've got until the 30th of April and they won't face disciplinary action as long as they apply by that date. That's right? That's right. That's correct. Anything else they need to know? I think the other key thing is that we've built a website hub for the practice certificate and there's some more information on there. There's articles. There's obviously the podcast that we did previously. And there are some common scenarios that are worth taking a look at to see if you fit in any of these areas that might have changed. Or typically, in the past, we've received um, questions and queries from members whether they require a PC into our technical advisory services helpline. So there's a number of scenarios there that are common um, that people can go and have a look and see where the grey areas might become more clear. Um, But what I would reiterate is that it is the member's responsibility to determine themselves whether they require a practicing certificate. Now, there's a, there's a hub for members where they can go and, and, and check up on all this. But can you just remind us, Chris, how members apply and how long that process is likely to take? In the hub, there is a link to the essentially the application to apply for a practicing certificate. So that information is contained in the hub. And when we say how long will it take, we have seen an uptick in uh, applications for practicing certificates following our uh, communication strategy over the last 12 months. So I would say at the moment, we typically give timeframes between 8 and 12 weeks for the application process to go through. Okay, so now is the time then, if the, uh, if the amnesty ends on the 30th of April? Yep, so what the amnesty, important to note on the amnesty is you need to apply by the 30th of April. It's not apply and be granted, it's to apply by the 30th of April. And that's the key thing, get the application in now. That's great. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you. That's it for this month. Head to the show notes as usual for more information on everything we've covered today. Join us later in the month for February's In Focus podcast and this series will be back in early March. In the meantime, why not rate, review and share this episode and subscribe to the whole series on your app. And as you may know, daily, weekly or monthly newsletters from ICAW Insights are available with all the latest accountancy news. You can find them on the website. You can sign up for them there at your preferred frequency. Thanks for being with us. Mm-hmm.